I lost a bet. <laughs> if you would, please, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. I'll be reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Philippians 3, 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, true, powerful word to our souls. Father, as Bob just prayed, oh, please allow us to continue to worship you. From song and prayer to preaching in hearing. Do it, O oh Lord, to the glory of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Most of you know that Pastor James Coates is sitting in jail in Canada for weeks now, away from his wife, his children, his church, his crime, being faithful to his pastoral calling and preaching to his gathered congregation. He could be released in the next hour if he would just sign his name and promise that if they let him out of jail, that he will not go on with his pastoral duties of preaching to his gathered flock and to fellowship together. It's not easy, I can imagine. Certainly didn't sound like it when many of us listened to his wife. It's painful. It's hard. But from what I can gather from him, having heard him preach a couple times, where he's coming from is this. He was prepared. Prepared. In other words, he took Paul's words seriously. He knew Christianity according to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-2. to 2. He says to the church, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. There's the preparation. Be armed with weapons. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. And Peter's point is if you choose suffering, then you're armed. 
Pastor Coates, in his situation, could have chosen not to suffer. But if you choose it, Peter is saying, because you're armed, you won't be taken off guard when it comes to some strange thing were happening to you as a lover of the Lord Jesus, because you would have prepared yourself for what was coming. And that brings us back into our text here in Philippians chapter 3. So let's remember the larger context, the flow of Paul's thought. Back in verses 7 and 8, he is defining the essence of true circumcision of the heart, meaning new birth. What is it? And for Paul, he says it's this, I count all things as loss. Hmm. In order, in order, in order to know Christ more. Then, in the second part of verse 8, he, he restates this, this why. Why would you reckon everything as trash and loss in, in your life? Three reasons. One is in order to gain Christ. Secondly, is in order to be found justified. We spent four weeks on that one. And thirdly, this morning, verses 10 and 11. So that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. So that by any means possible, I, Paul, may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul says, I wake up every day and the activities that lay before me, in them I endeavor to consider all things is rubbish. Why? Because of verse 10. It's a three-point answer. The first is in order that I may know Jesus. To know Him. The ultimate goal of His life is to know Christ more. He's been a Christian for 30 years at this point. And yet he says to the Philippians, every day, I want to know him more. Then notice, there's two other things he says. And the next two things, I think if we understand the meaning of Paul here, we should not understand them like this. Okay, first I want to know Christ. Then secondly, added on to that, I want to, something different. I want to know the power of His resurrection. And I also then want to know, literally, koinonia, the fellowship of His sufferings. 
But instead, I think what Paul is saying is my goal is to know Jesus more and more, which means to know Him in the power that dwells within me. That same power that raised Him from the dead and to know Him in that power working through me while I experience sufferings in my life. In other words, the experience of God's power and through Paul's sufferings are defining more specifically what it is to know Christ more and more. That I may know the power, the power of His resurrection. What he's driving at is, God raised him from the dead. The Spirit of God raised him from the dead. I want to know the experience of that Spirit working in me now. Listen to how he prays for Christians in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. He says that, that Christians will know, quote, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. To change us feeble, sinful people whom he's already called out of darkness, caused us to be born again, and left us still sinful, to change us from one degree of glory to the other takes nothing less than the very power that raised Jesus bodily from the grave to be working in us. And here's Paul's point. That power is working itself in us through sufferings. Particularly pain through the fellowship with Christ's sufferings. That's how we grow in knowing Christ more and more. And then Paul tacks this thing on. I think, I think as here's here, you want to put it in a nutshell? Here it is, in other words. Here's Paul's understanding of the Christian life. Becoming like him in his death. In other words, knowing Christ more in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and in the experiences of His sufferings is the process of being conformed to His death. And that is actually the literal translation. To be conformed to His death. Exact same Greek word as Paul uses in Romans 8 to predestined in order to be conformed to the image of His Son. ESV translates it Becoming like Him. That verb is a passive voice. Which means this is something Paul understands is being done to Him 
or in him or through him by another, by God. God's resurrection power, same power that literally brought Jesus from that mortal death to immortality, mixed with his experiences, sufferings. Together they are conforming him to Jesus' death. That's Paul's thinking. If you would for a moment, turn to 2 Corinthians 4 and listen to how Paul spells this out. Starting with verse 7. But we have this treasure. Spirit of God and the truth of the gospel and ministry. We have this treasure in what? <laughs> Jars of clay. In our souls and in these mortal, sickly, sin-laden bodies. We have this treasure in jars of clay, in order to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, Paul and his companions. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed because of the power that dwells within us. We're perplexed because of the power of the resurrected Christ dwelling in us by the Spirit, we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Here he is. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. We're all dying. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so Paul, in our passage, is saying all of this experience of the Christian life is with a goal in mind. Verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. To say it in short, verse 10 of Philippians 3 leads to verse 11. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, in order that, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Right, to help us 
make sure we see that clearly. I just want to turn the logic upside down and just work the same logic backwards about what Paul is saying in these two verses. Because the future promise of the bodily resurrection from the dead is true, therefore I, Paul, will go on considering all things as rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. I will pursue intimate knowing of Jesus in and through suffering in this life because that is the road to obtaining promise of the resurrection from the dead. And this is the tension of true Christianity. The unimaginable promise of the future and what lay ahead in the resurrection and the scary of suffering here and now in this life while we are being conformed to Jesus' death. This is not peripheral to Christianity. It's central. I want you to turn over to Paul, Romans 8 for a moment. In Romans 8, notice what he says in verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. Oh gosh, how precious this is. That we are children of God. Okay. How does the Spirit do that? Well, look at the context. Go back to verse 13. It tells us. For if you live according to the flesh... You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And in other words, new birth by the Holy Spirit and His indwelling leads every Christian into a war against their flesh. Sinful nature. It leads every one of us into considering all things as rubbish in order to gain Christ. And then look at verse 15 and next verse. For, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. That Abba, Father, is the power to reject the competing desires of our sinful nature. And it's the power that brings us to repentance for our sin Again and again. And then notice the incentive Paul goes on to give. In other words, the incentive to continue to go after him. To pursue knowing Christ. It's in verse 17. 
And if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God. And we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. In order that we may also be, one day, glorified with Him. There are two massive truths there in verse 17. And one is that we will receive a great inheritance. The resurrection of our bodies to immortality. And the other massive truth is we're going to have to suffer on the road to that place to one extent or another. Or as Paul says it in our text in Philippians 3, verse 10 leads to verse 11. And so let's contemplate then for the rest of our time those two verses. First, let's contemplate verse 11. Then we'll go back to verse 10. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You believe in Jesus? To believe in Jesus means that line right there should be at the core of your desires, in your consciousness, your drive. And it poses the question that as each one of us faces whatever joys and pleasures that remain of our life, what are we hoping in beyond inevitable death and judgment and the consummation of all things? The question is, do you live by a hope beyond this life that makes all those wonderful experiences God gives to you and will continue to give to you that makes those experiences small in comparison to the hope that lay before you, the massive promise of the gospel. Or on the other hand, for whatever time you have left in this life, you live by that hope beyond this life that causes all the tragedies or heartaches or pains and disappointments and sickness and disease and struggle and persecution to seem small because of the glorious coming inheritance in the resurrection. That is what Paul had and that's what Paul wants us to have. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Or the way he put it in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
He's saying that the power to endure suffering of any kind or persecution is the gospel, is the promise of the resurrection and the inheritance that is laid up for you then. The future glory that is on the way is so great that it makes every trouble in life and every joy in life small in comparison. Not small, but in comparison. Let's look at that for a moment. The gospel, the promise, the inheritance. There are three aspects to it that at least I want to unfold here. And one is this. Here's the promise. These bodies that are mortal, getting older, they get sicker, they hurt more, you die because they either wear out or some other disease kills you. The promise is this. You, that individual person, self-consciousness, who is created by God in Christ, the promise is this, you will receive a glorified, resurrected body one day forever. That's what he means, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Human beings were created in the image of God as soul and body. And we will be soul and body forever. Jesus came and redeemed it all. Listen to what Paul goes on to say in Romans 8 for a second. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, he's talking now about Christians, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's a key part of what Paul meant in verse 17 of Romans 8 when he says, in order to be glorified. That's what he means, the resurrection. To be glorified with Jesus, with Christ. We have bodies that are immortal, just like His is now. We will share in the glory of God, being conformed to the image of Christ, in order to enjoy Him and everything that Jesus enjoys in His true resurrected humanity, He is bringing us into. That's the promise. The second thing of this inheritance, that when Jesus returns and we are raised from the dead, we will inherit the world. That's how Paul writes it in Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world 
did not come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. In other words, Paul is clearly saying that if you share the faith of Abraham by faith in Christ, justification by faith that we've been through the last four weeks, then you are a fellow heir with Abraham, and you will inherit the world. Listen to how Paul put this in 1 Corinthians 3. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. He really believed that. Everything is yours. Whether you're of Paul or of Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours. And you are Christ's. You belong to Him. And Christ belongs to God. He says, everything is yours if you belong to Christ. The hope of the resurrection means that everything that exists will be for your eternal happiness. All things are yours means that even the negative things here, it's, he mentions it, death, death, it's all yours. This is the meaning of Romans 8.28. For God does cause all things to work together for good. To those who love him, to those who are called according to his Resurrection of the body. You'll inherit the world. And thirdly, our resurrected bodies and the whole world that we're inheriting is all for God. Our resurrected bodies are for us to enjoy God forever. He is the ultimate goal, the ultimate end of our existence forever and ever. He is our inheritance. You know, as I read this morning, remember those words of Paul in Romans 5, to we rejoice, and he's talking about in the midst of life and pain and suffering, we rejoice in hope of what? The glory of God. The great joy of our hope is that one day we will see and enjoy unendingly the glory of God Himself. This is how Revelation 21 verses 3 to 4 contextualizes all of your life down here. All the sweet pleasures and, and all the twists and turns of pain and heartache. It is all leading here for those who are in Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. That's why Paul cries out in Philippians 3.11 that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And now the way to that verse 11 is verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So what does it mean that we must share in Christ's sufferings in order to attain the resurrection of the dead? Well, what does it mean when Paul says in Romans eight seventeen, we're heirs of God if we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified Well, you know how Jesus put it. If anyone would come after me, follow me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 1 Peter 4.13 says it this way, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So, what does our passage, what does Philippians 3, 7 to 11 teach us about living the Christian life? As I read and just hear the logic of the text again, notice that as Paul is using himself as an example, it has something to do with decisions or choices, acts of, of will that he is choosing. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for His sake. I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship with His sufferings becoming like Him in His death, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So our text makes it clear that it is living a life of sacrifice 
of loss, of suffering, and choosing it. But it's a life that would be utterly foolish and stupid to live if there is no resurrection from the dead to come. You know how Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15. He's making conscious choices built on the gospel. Built on theology. As he said, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, and not the life to come, then we, well, particularly him, maybe not all of us who profess to be Christians, but, but he says he should have all people, and he includes the Corinthians, Christians, because the choices you're making, what you're giving up, and what you're going towards, and how you're living your life, and how you're willing to suffer persecution if it comes, he says we are of all people most to be pitied. Because we lived a lie. Which led to sufferings and persecutions. And it was stupid. Because there's no God and there's no resurrection. And we should have just eaten and drank and played as much as we could. Pastor James Coates sits in jail this morning and he should be pitied if Christ has not risen from the dead because if Jesus has not risen from the dead that would mean that James Coates put his hope in something that is false But that hope is what drives him to say, I'm not going to promise you, oh government, that I will not pastor my people and gather together in obedience to the Lord. The power to make very difficult choices is the promise. of the glorification of our bodies and the eternity that is to come and which thus informs our daily living and choices now. His hope is well founded. Our hope is well founded. That is what led the Apostle Paul to choose sufferings for Christ again and again, and he had a lot of opportunities for it. Listen to what Paul said. Just, just, just hear him. This was a number of years earlier than writing the book of Philippians. He writes this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 11. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, long days doing both. 
And when we viled, when people say all kinds of nasty things to us and about us, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse, the garbage of all things. Are you willing to stick with Jesus in the culture in which God has put you? Are you willing to hang with him, which means to hang with the intended meaning of Scripture from beginning to end? Are you willing to stick with God-created humanity, male and female? Period. And that there are only two sexes? Are you willing to stick to Biblical sexual morality? That all sexual relations between human beings outside of the covenant of marriage between a male and a female is sin? In other words, are, are you willing to become the scum of the earth? The refuse of all things. To be called a hater because of your faith in Jesus to be called scum? Are you willing to become worthy of re-education camps? Literally or just culturally? Remember what Paul said in chapter 1 of Philippians. Let me, let, me, let me go back for a moment. And Jesus did say, and if you're a believer, you responded to this. Come to me. Come to me. Have me. Receive me. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. You thirst? You hunger? Come. You'll never thirst or hunger again. And you say, wow, look at that. I've come. What a gift. And so Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but that's, that's, yes, I believe, you should not only believe in Him, but it's also been granted to you that you should suffer for His sake. And finally, let me just say, because it's clear in the New Testament, that suffering in our lives as lovers of Jesus, that suffering itself is the servant of God that is helping us be conformed to the image of His Son by breaking our sinful bonds to the world into self-reliance. That's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 1. Two verses 
come to close. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were utterly burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired of life itself. Just kill us, Lord. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now here comes the kicker. Paul says there was a purpose in it. And it wasn't the purpose of the persecutors. And it's not the purpose of Satan. He said there was a purpose in that. And it was God's purpose. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death in order that. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. There it is again. Paul, you're missing the goal again. You're getting your eye off the ball. The resurrection in the future, Paul. And this is God's work of sanctification in all Christians to make us more contented in God and less satisfied with the world and our own self reliance if we hold fast to him when all else around us is crumbling then we will show that he is he's more to be desired than gold oh yes fine gold sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb if we keep the inheritance of Philippians 3, verse 11, the center of our desires, then we will grow in our confession along with the Apostle Paul. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It is this Christ that I cherish and want to know now more and more. And yes, even if and in my sufferings and pain, because it is through them that God's gracious hand is conforming me to the image of His Son, even to the image of His death, so that I will be preserved in faith and attain to the resurrection from the dead. Oh, let it be our confession. Let it be so this week through every mountain pleasurable joy that God graciously gives and we thank Him to the valleys of heartache and pain and frustration. Oh, Father, we thank you for your ongoing wonder.